0: The 60s and 70s were the starting point of a tectonic social shift, but few saw it coming. Any idealism and optimism left over from the 60s had been replaced with fear of exploitation in the 70s as the post-World War II economic boom in the U.S. began to wane. Americans faced a decade of soaring inflation, political upheaval, and the erosion of prestige worldwide. These factors, coupled with mounting debt and diminishing returns on hard work, inadvertently created a perfect storm for the student loan crisis that would define the future. We went from believing in our capacity to progress through bold legislative moves into an era marked by trepidation and caution of government and an explosion of the financial sector. The New Deal and Great Society programs pushed the nation forward, but once ordinary Americans struggled to keep up with an economy that was increasingly stretching out of their reach, we had to ask ourselves if our generosity went too far. Who could have predicted how drastically different life would become in the 80s? Whereas Part 1 explained the mechanisms put into place during the 60s and 70s to help create a new program of government backed racketeering, this episode is concerned with the 80s and the story that unfolds is a new wave of student money laundering, an insidious system built upon government facilitated greed, distrust in public institutions, an unbridled avarice. This era was when politicians, banks, corporations, and investors found ways to grow even richer off students' future profits through schemes that ran unchecked and largely unnoticed until it was too late. Turning what could be argued was once a quasi public good into a bona fide money stream for those savvy enough to game it. It's an ugly chapter in our financial history that still reverberates today. This episode is undoubtedly about student loans and a crisis that finally caught the eye of the average citizen towards the end of the 20th century, but the episode draws us into an exploration of the human condition. What happens when our faith in institutions, in government, and ourselves wavers? Who do we turn to when those who we entrusted fail us so profoundly? In essence, what this episode is really about? is a study of how societies can change. But find out for yourself in a series I'm calling The Debt Sentence. This is Lesson 2, Demagogues, Proletariats, and the Reagan Devolution of Student
1: Loans. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Come baby, strange
2: but not a stranger. i
0: As the 1970s were taking their last dreadful breaths, the American people had seen enough. Confidence in their economy and government had plummeted to unprecedented levels, leaving them desperate for a change, a chance at a brighter tomorrow. They looked to the future with hopeful eyes, eager for something new. And they found it, a new ideology that would become just as influential as the New Deal coalition in the 1930s the same coalition that was about to be buried for good. But first, we need to take a quick trip in the wayback machine to
1: 1968. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me you built a time machine? So how
0: does 1968 play a role in shaping the future of the U.S.? Well, it's a bit like how you can't appreciate the Beatles without understanding the cultural context of the 1960s. Let's take it back a step further. Let's just say if today's social and political elements are an explosive mess, 1968 may be the year the wick is lit. The United States was bogged down in an unpopular warrant in Vietnam and facing protests at home over racial inequality. A series of shocking events shook the country to its core. Viet Cong forces launched an offensive martin luther king jr's assassination triggered riots nationwide in 125 american cities and the murder of robert kennedy followed immediately after his california primary victory as richard nixon secured the republican ticket for president san francisco state students responded with a powerful five-month strike demanding ethnic studies programs and open admissions for people of color While the world was burning around him, Lyndon B. Johnson tapped a progressive economist in her 30s, entrusting her with the daunting task of fixing Congress's hastily crafted higher education loan program that created perverse incentives. Her name was Alice Rivlin, and as an adherent of the New Economics School, Rivlin sought to use analysis to reduce poverty and saw college as a major part of the solution since graduates earned much more than non-graduates. The ambitious mission would become the cornerstone of her career and set the stage for progressive reforms in higher education. Taking charge of a panel populated mainly by government officials, Rivlin set out to craft a plan for financing higher education that would provide for generations to come yet this task was made all the more complicated by inflation which had run rampant since johnson had signed the higher education Act. banks needed money colleges needed money students needed money the government's foray into student lending was already a debacle alice rivlin and her panel proposed a revolutionary financing plan to combat the rising tuition costs of college institutions The idea was to provide students with loans and grants from the federal government to shop around for cheaper schools, introducing competition into the system that would open up prestigious universities to more poor and minority students while having wealthier students fund the difference. Her committee report became the framework for the federal student loan program in what was supposed to be a partnership between banks, schools, and American families. But the sad truth is that our elected leaders would become complicit in creating a profit center for exploitative lenders, universities, Wall Street, and eventually the government itself. As more money became available for loans, these parties maneuvered without any guardrails to protect students from paying too much or taking on too much debt. The result? A form of crony capitalism. Lenders, schools, and sometimes borrowers? all profited while the government absorbed all the risk. Tens of thousands of dollars in private loans became normal without banks and schools putting any of their own money at stake. Meanwhile, while Rivlin is working with her committee, America is at a breaking point. The long-standing New Deal coalition has been shattered, and the country is bitterly divided over issues like civil rights and the Vietnam War. During this volatile political moment, Senator Eugene McCarthy makes a strong challenge to the vice president and Democratic candidate Hubert Humphrey, running on an anti-war platform that resonates with young voters. Richard Nixon's campaign on law and order tapped into the anxieties of working class and blue collar voters, while Governor George Wallace of Alabama.
2: And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever.
0: Yeah. That George Wallace spins a segregationist and populist platform that finds an audience among white rural voters in the South and Midwest, who have felt left behind by the Democratic Party. In the end, Nixon barely edges ahead of Humphrey in the popular vote, and Wallace pulls in a respectable 13.5%. The election of 1968 signals the beginning of the conservative era. Still, social unrest and deep divisions continue to shape American politics for years to come, All these fractured elements will eventually find a home. But there's one thing that's forgotten about that year. On Christmas Eve in 1968, the Apollo 8 mission achieved a series of historical firsts. But there's one event that's often overlooked. Three astronauts, Jim Lavelle, Bill Enders, and Frank Borman, traveled to the moon and circled it ten times. They took the first photos of Earth from deep space, including the iconic Earthrise photo. The mission also set a new rocket speed record and broadcast the lunar surface on live television for the first time. Additionally, it was the first time humans had traveled to the far side of the moon. These achievements were remarkable and deserve recognition, but the historical significance of the mission has been overshadowed by other events of that time. The one huge thing that fails to get mentioned is Eisenhower's plan to send kids to college and catch up to the Russians in the space race was a smashing success.
2: My scientific advisory placed this problem above all other immediate tasks. We need science. In the 10 years ahead, they say we need them by thousands more. The federal government can deal with only part of this difficulty. The task is a cooperative one. Federal, state, and local governments, and our entire citizenry,
0: And this was all thanks to the participation of all levels of government and a society that believed that affordable education was the key to unlocking the potential of America. Fast forward to today's weird world of student debt, where the lines are blurred and the answers always are unclear. It's a strange conundrum we find ourselves in, where most Americans understand the importance of a college education, and are also worried about the impact of student loans on the economy and individual borrowers, but seem to think there's only two answers, forgive the debt or don't forgive it. And so we do absolutely nothing. The latest poll by the SRSS for the Pew Charitable Trusts reflects this ambivalence, with 81% of the respondents calling for government intervention. But at the same time, a significant portion of the population, particularly senior citizens, believe that graduates just need to work harder to solve the debt crisis, and many polls will find the same sentiment. It's a weird dichotomy, isn't it? On one hand, people are eager for the government to intervene and help ease the burden of student loan debt. On the other hand, there's a significant chunk of the population who thinks it's all on the shoulders of the borrowers themselves. This divide in opinion is likely to play a big role in shaping political and economic decisions in the coming years. But in the end, it all comes down to one fundamental question. Who's to blame for the student loan crisis? Is it the government, big banks, universities, or the students themselves? If we answer this fundamental question, then we might be able to find a way to move forward. To understand why this is such a hot-button issue, we need to take a look at the history, which is complex and amorphous. Recent memory does us no good because the view of education has transformed in the last half-century. In the 1950s and 60s, college was seen as an essential public good, not a punchline or far-leftist plot. The government invested in higher education to help society succeed, and the economy was humming. Of course, there was the aforementioned matter of staying ahead of communism, but you can hear that story in the first lesson in this series. But it wasn't just a momentary blip on the radar of American history. The roots of higher education as a public good can be traced back to the country's very inception. The federal government has been involved in shaping higher education policies for centuries, from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and the early military academies the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1862 that granted public land to states for building colleges, or as covered in the first episode, we can look at the G.I. Bill of Rights and Lyndon B. Johnson's Higher Education Act of 1965, both of which paved the way for the need-based financial aid and student loans we have today. And let's not forget the founding fathers like George Washington, James Madison, and Benjamin Franklin, who played pivotal roles in establishing educational institutions to promote national pride and foster constitutional law, all believing in educated citizenry was needed for the American experiment to succeed. So when it comes down to it, all forms of government have made substantial contributions to improve access to higher education throughout American history, with communities and states also heavily subsidizing it. Today, we're stuck in a multi-pronged battle for the soul of higher ed with the Office of Federal Student Aid, or FSA, in the crosshairs. Tasked with implementing and managing all federal student loan programs, FSA officials are now navigating the Biden administration's efforts to offer student loan forgiveness to millions of borrowers. But flat funding from Congress has caused delays and left many in limbo. What's flat funding, you ask?
1: Love me, Doc. It's when the government keeps the same amount of money for something every year without adjusting for inflation or changing needs. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, it can be a problem. For example, if we keep flat funding schools, but the number of students goes up, then each student gets less money for education. Ah, I see. So it's like having the same amount of carrots to share, but more rabbits to feed. Exactly. And it's not just schools. Black funding can affect all kinds of things, from healthcare to infrastructure. Sounds like it could be a pretty big problem. Well, it sure can be. That's why it's important to look at changing needs and inflation, or we might end up with some serious issues. And last I checked, inflation is pretty fucking high right now. If by inflation you mean corporate extortion, then sure.
0: Thanks, guys. It's not just about money, though. It's about politics. With lawmakers from both parties tossing around the flat funding as a political football, instead of helping to solve the issue, Republicans can make matters worse for struggling borrowers, while Democrats focus on Hail Mary propositions of loan forgiveness because, well, the education lobby is in their pocket. And just when things couldn't get more complicated, a Supreme Court case is underway that could further strain the FSA's resources. The case involves blocking Biden's one-time student loan cancellation initiative, which could mean hundreds of billions in additional relief for 40 million borrowers. Depending on the outcome, though, the FSA could face even more pressure and limited resources as they try to manage multiple debt relief initiatives. The student debt crisis is a mess of tangled interests, deep pockets, and entrenched bureaucrats, all fighting to protect their cash cows. Society's altruistic view of higher education as a public good has long been forgotten, replaced by the individualistic pursuit of education as a means of personal advancement. The truth is, the system of higher education has a lot of blame to go around. Still, universities are getting away mostly unscathed, having no accountability when students can't pay back their loans, unless you have 30% or more defaults over three consecutive years. That's when they might lose eligibility for future students to get federal loans. And here we are, America's colleges and universities neglecting their duty of controlling the ballooning tuition cost, and instead transferring the burden to the students by piling on debt. Instead of fixing their wasteful spending and frivolous amenities that serves no purpose to their primary mission of education— These institutions are choosing to expand their administrative staff and infrastructure building. The result is that in many schools, the number of bureaucrats outweighs the number of educators. In 2019, 11% of loan defaults came from for-profit colleges, despite only enrolling 7% of the country's students. Meanwhile, 81 university leaders are earning over a million dollars, with 17 of them from public colleges. After all, student loan forgiveness would be great for colleges. It would basically be akin to a transfer from the Treasury Department directly to the schools and give students the idea that taking out student loans is a winning proposition, as they'll probably most likely be forgiven at some point. I'm sure loan servicers and other interests will be less accommodating as their revenue stream gets a clean slate. It's time to face the truth. This is the manifestation of 40 years of financial recklessness and exploiting students for profit, all while peddling the shit out of these kids and their parents on the virtues of a diploma, telling them and selling them that it'll all be worth it, no matter the price tag. Even in a culture that idolizes college dropouts like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, refusing to go to college has become a sin, a societal taboo, a guilt-inducing failure like refusing to reach one's own potential. And if you can't make it in life, well, that's all on you. But as I've pointed out time and again, things weren't always like this. Sure, those money interests were always there, lurking in the shadows, but we had somewhat effective tools in dealing with them. We were also a people who believed in upward mobility, But indulging in billionaire porn on TV, on TikTok, and buying into get-rich-quick schemes has distorted us so that the new American dream has become a twisted, corrupted fantasy where becoming a billionaire is the only way to live the good life. A recent study of Americans' views on billionaires in August by the Harris Group supports this. It reflects that despite public resentment of the ultra-rich and their supposed obligation to pay their fair share in taxes, a majority of Americans now dream of hitting the jackpot and joining the 1% Club. 44% of American adults believe they can strike it rich. That's in part to speculative investments like cryptocurrencies. But what we're really buying into is a pipe dream. It's a curious paradox, isn't it? A fascination with the wealthy and successful, especially if they're the rich, greedy assholes ruining the country for the rest of us. But that's the new American dream, to be a rich, greedy asshole capable of ruining the country, actually ruining the world. Remember when we used to just dream of home ownership and a middle class life? That's not enough anymore. So when did we take such a drastic turn? How did we get to the point where we are today? You guys hear that? You know what that is?
2: Welcome to the 1980s. Kink your hair, wear leopard Prince spandex, chair slats bracelets, blind everyone with sequins and grow a celic mustache. Indulgence means everything in this decade.
0: Yes, it's the 80s, a period of seismic transformation in America marked by the emergence of cable tv as the dominant form of home entertainment mtv's disruption of the music industry standards and the massive impact of personal computers at the same time the sexual liberation and substance indulgence of the 1970s were forced to confront a new reality in the life of the aids epidemic and as a result there was an increased awareness about the dangers of drugs and sexually transmitted diseases leading to more focus on monogamy and safe sex relationships but what this generation may be best known for
2: greed for lack of a better word
0: is good greed is good will become the mantra for a generation of yuppies looking to capitalize on an expanding economy Emerging from the ashes of hippie culture, these aspiring professionals sought out executive jobs and flashy consumer products as symbols of their newfound wealth. Designer sunglasses, high-end cars, and all things polo. So what does this all have to do with student debt? Well, if the 60s were the generation of the counterculture and the great society, this was the generation of the counter-revolution and the restoration of the self-reliant American. And although this counter-revolution was the amalgamation of many moving parts, the decade is dominated
2: by one man, none other than the great community. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of this podcast. It's the 80s. And I was elected running against a host of mythical foes, from welfare queens to an all-powerful evil empire. But for myself and this administration, we've never shed antipathy toward elitist campuses and the young people who dared question the system in the late 1960s. Even more important, the coming shift, both in tone and expectation. Public goods will become private services and by the end of the 80s support for higher education will be thrown into a cage match with every other necessary public good. It's time to submit to a world in which students who wanted to better their situation chooses between private colleges that build staggering debt into their aid packages and public institutions that added their state funding slashed to the bone, incentivizing them to make up for shortfalls by raising tuition just like their private counterparts. Filing on the loan, we will not subsidize intellectual curiosity. My name is Ronald Maximus Reagan, infrastructure starving, welfare slashing, tax decimating, regulation smashing, protector of the Burgos Sea, supreme commander of the Imperial Army. I'm the American Forces, and I'll have my revenge.
0: Ronald Reagan is the central figure in a mythical narrative that casts him as an almost comic book hero or villain, depending on who you ask. To some, Reagan's revolution was a crushing blow to years of progress towards a more equal and compassionate America, a time when greed was celebrated, and civil rights, feminism, and environmental issues were all put in jeopardy. On the other hand, those who view him fondly remember his vision of self-sufficiency, limited government, not according to my spending calculations, but, uh, strong defense and tax cuts that supposedly unleash the power of the American economy. This was all while spreading global freedom. The intense debates surrounding his legacy often overlook the man himself and what he represented. Reagan's legacy is really this. He is the sum of a pessimistic and distrusting American society, one that felt adrift in the 70s. And just when it seemed like nothing could thaw the country's aura of helplessness and desolation, Ronald Reagan was there with his conservative followers pointing fingers at big government and its welfare programs, accusing bureaucrats of wrecking the economy and stomping out the individual initiative. The 80s would become a transformative decade for the United States, marked by a rapidly changing political, economic, and technological landscape. The widespread adoption of computers in the workplace was a major driver of economic transformation in the 80s. Companies like Microsoft, IBM, and Apple were attracting top talent with high salaries and incredible job prospects. For college graduates, this was an exciting time to enter the workforce. However, for blue-collar workers, the situation was not as rosy. Wages were declining, and the new wave of technology threatened to displace many jobs that had sustained working-class communities for generations. At the same time, tuition was becoming increasingly prohibitive, but education became a critical investment for individuals looking to secure their future. For many, a college degree was seen as the key to upward mobility and economic stability. This economic imperative put pressure on students to invest in their education, but this was a different America now. Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, and a clear disdain still existed from his years as governor for spoiled college students who he felt were taking advantage of hardworking taxpayers. His administration viewed universities as liberal hotbeds of anti-Americanism and believed that professors were out-of-touch elitists who indoctrinated their students with anti-establishment ideas. This goes back to 1967, when Ronald Reagan became governor. He ran on a platform of cutting taxes and slashing state spending. But he wasn't shy about telling universities to give up their intellectual luxuries and positioning them as the enemy after the campus protests of the 60s, which he referred to as a bunch of filthy speech advocates. But the foundations of this philosophy were brewing while Reagan was still a Democrat. The Hoover Institution was established as a fundraising campaign, and later changed its name in 1957 to the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace, and gained traction as a powerful force in conservative thinking. A disciple of this think tank named Roger A. Freeman would go on to become a government official under the Eisenhower and Nixon administrations, quietly becoming a central figure in the conservative backlash against progressive campus movements. Freeman championed the rollback of centralized education and other domestic services, which aligned with the conservative philosophy. In 1969, the City University of New York introduced a free tuition policy for working class and poor New Yorkers, which sparked backlash from Governor Reagan and Vice President Spiro Agnew. They claimed that the policy would create a permanent underclass with poor educations. During Reagan's run for a second term as governor, Freeman became an advisor on policy and publicly supported the shutdown of all 28 University of California and Cal State campuses in response to student protests. And if you wanted any more proof of the animosity that had grown in this time, Freeman publicly backed Reagan's actions in the San Francisco Chronicle under the headline, Professor Sees Peril in Education, which is attached in the show notes. According to the article, Freeman said, We are in danger of producing an educated proletariat. That's dynamite. We have to be selective on who we allow to go to college. If not, Freeman continued, we will have a large number of highly trained and unemployed people. Later in the article, Freeman is also quoted as saying, and this is taking a highly idiosyncratic perspective on the cause of fascism, that's what happened in Germany. I saw it happen. This new view of American colleges would continue to filter through society up into the 80s. When Reagan took office, one of his first moves was to drive a stake through the heart of higher education, raising interest rates on federally guaranteed student loans from 7% to 9% and slashing Pell Grants for middle-class kids. Because that's what heroes do. The 1981 Omnibus Bill replaced the Parent PLUS program with Auxiliary Loans to Assist Students, or ALAS. It still allowed parents to sign off on student loans, but with jacked up loan limits and interest rates that ballooned from 9% to 14% practically overnight. So now the parents could get caught up in all the fuckery that was going on. Plus, they threw in a 5% origination fee, which was baked into the loan, effectively reducing the amount of the loan since it was paid up front. You know, just for shits and giggles. Within the administration's first month, a new accelerated debt collection program was being kicked around. The New York Times explained that one White House official referred to the uncollected loans as an undeveloped government asset. In the past, he added, there was little effort to track down delinquent recipients of such loans. If you have to, you go to court, said another White House staff member in reference to the loans that were in default. You can raise the interest. You can raise the penalty. You can raise the penalty on late internal revenue service payments. That's all being considered. See, the Reagan Revolution was just starting to make a major overhaul on the financing of American higher education. As the government aimed to curb spending and emphasize personal responsibility, funding for grants was reduced while individual loans took center stage. Now to understand why this was possible, we need to understand Reaganism was not just about one man's conservative ideology, but a powerful movement that reshaped American politics for decades to come. Oh, you hear that music? Time for a brief history lesson. Back in the day, Keynesian economics was the popular kid on the block. This theory stated that the government could steer the economy and prevent recessions from becoming too severe by either spending more or cutting taxes. It was the answer to the economic problems that plagued the mid-20th century after the Great Depression. It was used by both Democrats and Republicans alike at this time, with Richard Nixon even declaring publicly to be Keynesian and leaving many of the Recent regulations at that time for occupational health and safety, consumer protections, and environmental protections in place. Hell, he even established the Environmental Protection Agency. But in the 1970s, Keynesian economics was unable to solve stagflation, leading citizens to question whether the government truly had the answers. What is stagflation, you said? Allow my friends to explain.
1: have you ever heard of stagflation? Stag, what I know. Stagflation, Daffy, it's when the economy isn't growing, but prices are still going up. So, the economy is not moving forward, but things are getting more expensive. That sounds like a really bad deal, Doc. You're right, Daffy. It's a tough situation because people's incomes don't increase. Enough to keep up with the rise in costs of goods and services. Well, that's just plain ducky what causes the stagflation anyway. It can be caused by a number of things, like a decrease in productivity or an increase in production costs. Sometimes it's also caused by a decrease in demand for goods and services. Sounds like a real shit pickle.
0: Enter. the no fucking
1: liberalism. Is it some kind of fancy new makeup? Is it a type of food, perhaps? No safety nets, no handouts, no mercy. It's a doggy dark world out there, and you better be ready to bite back.
0: For the past five decades, neoliberalism has been the champion. It's been the reigning belief in the world that minimal government intervention is the key to unlocking maximum wealth and benefiting society as a whole. But as we said before, it wasn't always this way. See, Back in the 60s, the US government was all about regulating businesses and protecting consumer and environmental interests. You know, exactly the kind of stuff that would be in direct opposition to the idea of neoliberalism. But that all changed when Lewis Powell came into the picture. Powell, who would go on to become a Supreme Court Justice and actually ruled in favor of Roe v. Wade, was a registered Democrat. But before he was on the Supreme Court, he was a lawyer and a board member at Philip Morris. And though he was socially a liberal, he liked money. He liked money a lot and felt that the free market was being suffocated by the government. He wrote a memo in 1971 called Attack on the American Free Enterprise System. And no, that's not just a cool name for a heavy metal album. Ah! It was an anti-communist and anti-New Deal blueprint that urged corporate America to take a more active role in shaping society's views on business, government, politics, and law. I could actually do a whole episode on this memo. It's fascinating to read, and I'll put it in the show notes. But basically, the memo inspired wealthy industrialist heirs, private charitable foundations, and right-wing think tanks to promote a pro-business, minimally regulated America. The Powell Memorandum was a major force in the rise of the conservative movement and the concentration of big business power, and it didn't stop there. The rise of conservative philanthropy led to the conservative intellectual movement and its increasing influence over mainstream political discourse. Think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation became major players in shaping policy and shaping public opinion. Neoliberalism rose as a result of deliberate, well-funded, and coordinated efforts. And it wasn't just about preparation. Neoliberal advocates saw multiple crises like sudden spikes in petrol prices and stagflation, as an opportunity to push through ideas that had been lying around for decades. It's all part of the shock doctrine strategy, as outlined by free market economist Milton Friedman. So there you have it. Neoliberalism didn't just happen by accident. It was a well-planned, well-financed effort that has profoundly impacted society and how we view economics and government. Nowadays, 1980s neoliberalism remains a driving force in politics and economics, promoted by international organizations such as the IMF and the World Bank, and has become the dominant paradigm in many developing countries. However, this had far-reaching consequences for American colleges, particularly as the 1980s progressed. See, the push towards privatization and profit motives had infiltrated all levels of society. And as this mindset took hold, colleges and universities were no exception. Congresspeople of every stripe, news media outlets, and even academia itself were all pushing this new gospel of college onto parents and their bright-eyed children. And the lenders? Oh, they could smell the money a mile away. The banks offered all sorts of incentives to students who took out loans. Walkmans, records, alarm clocks, you name it. They even went so far as to set up computer terminals in high schools just so students could apply for loans right then and there. Some banks were even paying departments at universities to influence students to apply for their loans. It was madness, and it was all driven by the perverse incentives created by the lack of oversight and regulation in this industry. Some of this perversion started in 1978 when Congress started feeling the heat from its middle- and upper-class constituents who were grumbling about the cost of college tuition. The Guaranteed Student Loan Program was already in place, but that only covered the interest on loans for students from families earning less than $25,000 a year. Lawmakers wanted to expand that to include higher-income families. President Jimmy Carter was against it, calling it a giveaway to the rich who were more likely to send their kids to expensive private schools. As a compromise, Congress passed the Middle Income Student Assistance Act, which removed the income threshold for interest free loans while in school and required students to pay 7% interest once they were out of school. By the way, Congress paid the banks that 7% while students were in school.
2: Damn, it feels good to be a gangster.
0: The move created a complex web of for-profit entities that opened up higher education to all Americans, while obscuring the true costs of such an endeavor to the public. And this was done using the biggest player in the for-profit, quasi-governmental world, Sally May. Sally May has been the real juggernaut in the student loan business. And what did they do? Well, they served as a go-between for the Treasury Department and the banks, It was almost set up like a game of hot potato, but with stacks of cash. The Treasury would give some dough through the Federal Financing Bank, who would then flip it off to Sally May. And Sally May was feeling pretty flush, because they had all this loot to give out to the banks through something called warehouse advances. On top of that, they would buy up the student loans, so that the banks could lend it to the students. The students would then pay the colleges. This was the way to keep it off of Congress's books and not make it look like this huge expenditure. But there was a catch: defaults started to rise, and that drove up the costs for taxpayers. Sally May was making bank no matter what. When you think of student debt, you can't help but think of Sally May. It's like they're two sides of the same coin. But let's be real: Sally May has been a special kind of evil in the student loan game. Banks have always been about making a buck by any means necessary. And they're upfront about it, which, which is shitty, but at least you could respect it. But Sally Mae was supposed to be different. They were created with an express purpose of making higher education more affordable and accessible to everyone. So it's kind of mind boggling how far they've fallen. It's like they went from being this engine for progress to just another greedy behemoth. But in the early eighties, they got to be even greedier. Hello, I like money. Congress authorized Sally May to offer loan consolidation and to make loans directly to students, which helped the company's assets grow from $1.6 billion to $28.6 billion from 1980 to 1988. However, while Congress had given Sally May the green light to go public in 1980, the company had yet to do so. Sally Mae's shares were owned solely by universities and banks, and going public would have opened the company up to more investors from around the world. This would have boosted Sally Mae's profits without any interference from bureaucrats or politicians. And by December 1983, Sally Mae opened non-voting shares to the public. By April of 1984, it increased 65% from its initial offering, and now investors from all over the planet were profiting off of the debt of American students. The college dream, once a noble pursuit of knowledge, had become just another commodity to be bought and sold. In 1983, a report called A Nation at Risk was released, causing an uproar in the American education system. President Reagan was at the forefront of the push for reforms, as the report warned of economic disaster if the education system wasn't fixed. The report sparked the Standards-Based Reform Movement, or SBR, which later greatly influenced the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001. The report was huge for Reagan because when Reagan ran for president initially, he had wanted to ab- abolish the Department of Education But what he found was the faith of parents in public schools had never wavered, and that didn't change with this report. However, the report was used to create a deficit of confidence in the public education system. One of the commission members, Gerald Holton, later revealed that Reagan hadn't even read the report. They knew this because at the report's release, Reagan stood up at the podium and thanked the members for advocating for in-school prayer, which had nothing to do with the report. That was after he thanked them and said they did a great job. (laughs) But this really exposed the president's attempt to use the report for political gain. Now, the report concentrated on elementary school, but it was a critical turning point in higher education as it helped push for privatization and opened up the floodgates for for for-profit colleges and universities to cash in on the lucrative federal student aid market. These profit-driven institutions gobbled up a disproportionate amount of student vouchers and loans, turning education into a money-making machine. And today, for-profit schools have a larger share of student borrowers than any other sector, including public and non-profit institutions. But here's the kicker. These same schools have some of the lowest graduation rates and the highest student loan default rates in the country. In my research, it was really no surprise to find out that Sandia Laboratories in New Mexico was commissioned to document the supposed decline in the education system using actual data in 1990. The resulting Sandia report showed nearly every measure of academic performance had either steadily improved or slightly improved, including SAT scores, despite the decline in the proportion of test takers. But the report was not released to the public, only becoming known to a small group of specialists in 1993 when it was printed in the Journal of Educational Research. It's actually one of the greatest cases of government censorship in American history. That's actually a really interesting case because it was squashed really because they had already put so much into these standards-based tests, and they didn't want the public to find out that it was really based on faulty information. By the mid-1980s, behind the scenes, the student loan crisis had the Reagan administration in a panic. Terrell Bell had just resigned as Secretary of Education on the final day of 1984. But now there was an opportunity to be had.
2: I've summoned you here because I require a man with specialized skills. What is thy bidding, my master? Too many students have abused the American taxpayer. Campus kids engaging in intellectual curiosity cannot stand under this administration. Their weekend will break easily. Once we have dispatched of the beatniks, the next task is vital to save the republic. These fancy pants universities and their lobbyist cronies have been spreading the hot wash that college is essential for everyone. But what I need is a man who can rally the masses and our lawmakers to see the truth. These so-called gooders are nothing but greedy, money-grubbing, institutions in dire need of regulation, and I need you, Bill Bennett, to make this happen. But what I'm really looking for is the ram. Is the ram up for it, soldier? Yes, master.
0: Back in the day, Bill Bennett was known as the ram. After he busted down a door to his dorm room with his head... That was after being locked out by his roommate. That's some serious determination right there. The nickname stuck, and it perfectly encapsulated the personality and brute determination of the 6'2", 220-pound former offensive tackle. After earning his PhD in political philosophy from the University of Texas and a law degree from Harvard University, he was ready to take on the big leagues. And let me tell you, he saw some serious issues with American universities, and the students attending them. And he was the perfect Secretary of Education for this administration. He started fast, exposing the student aid crisis publicly for the first time in 1985, when, during his confirmation hearings for Secretary of Education, he dropped a bomb on the student loan system. Bennett suggested that too many students were using their government-backed loans to buy stereos, to take three-week vacations all while colleges were lining their pockets and leaving students with a lifetime of debt. This caused an uproar among students and educators, but the media pounced, showing images of drunken spring breakers getting arrested for wild partying and public sex acts in nightclubs. I am Iron Man. With Bennett leading the charge, he expertly placed blame right where they all wanted it, on the students. To make matters worse, the 1986 Tax Reform Act only added fuel to the fire. The concentration of the law was to simplify the tax code and lower taxes on the top brackets, but a byproduct of doing this was axing the student loan interest deduction, thus stripping away incentives for investment in education. In 1988, a bipartisan group of lawmakers from the Senate Finance Committee criticized the 1986 Tax Reform Act for eliminating the student loan deduction. Longtime Republican Senator from Iowa, Charles Grassley, argued that education loans are a necessity, not a discretionary expense, and that removing the deduction amounts to a tax on human potential and sponsored a bill that would repeal what this group of congressmen saw as a grave mistake. The Reagan administration opposed Grassley's bill, claiming that Congress was aware of what it was doing and that the bill would mainly benefit taxpayers. Meanwhile, Grassley pointed out that the Tax Reform Act had already created inequality by allowing home equity loans to remain deductible. Senator John Danforth, a Republican from Missouri, summed up the committee's feelings when he said, you buy a yacht and you can deduct the interest payments on your yacht, but you work your way through college and you can't deduct interest on your student loan. I don't understand that. But Bennett and the administration won that argument. And with that, it was time to turn the dogs loose on the administration's other favorite target, the universities themselves. In 1987, Bennett didn't have the same tools at his disposal to go after schools as he did students. He turned to the media, writing op-eds that argued that increased financial aid allowed colleges and universities to raise tuition prices without any resistance from families. In other words, it was time for higher ed to become accountable. Bennett rampaged around the nation like a barbarian, waging unprecedented and unprincipled assaults on public education. His scornful term for for teachers' unions and administrators was the blob. What ended up emerging from Bill Bennett's nationwide tour was something called the Bennett Hypothesis. And essentially what it was asking was this. Are we, the government, actually causing tuition prices to go up by giving out more financial aid? He argued that if families didn't have access to aid, they wouldn't be willing to pay higher prices. So, it's kind of like when you refuse to pay $12 for a beer at a baseball game because you know it's ridiculous. On the other hand, I end up buying five or six beers and complain about it. So, it's kind of like college. So, I just ruined his hypothesis. My bad. Bennett's idea sparked a ton of controversy. It was a hot take for that time, no doubt, and it's been tested by researchers over the years. The results are all over the map, but what's clear is that the amount of money loaned to students and their families to pay for college has more than doubled since 2000. Like just about everyone who engages in political discourse, whether a private citizen, a government official, or some jerk with a podcast, we're all a little right about things and probably very wrong. No matter where you stand on the issues, that is. It's the same for Bill Bennett and the theory named after him. Because the problem with Bennett's theory was he lumped all student aid, all loans, private or not, together. But the kicker is, a student loan is not tied to some monolithic entity. There's many different types of loans that are given out by many different parties. And the families tend to hop from one to another as the more generous options dry up. It's like a never-ending game of musical chairs with ever-worsening financial terms. And let's not forget how confusing the whole process can be, even for industry insiders. It's a convoluted maze that parents and students must navigate every year, every semester, and one that seems to get more complicated with each passing year. Of course, colleges fought back against Bennett's criticism, spewing their own self-interested nonsense. They argued that they had to raise prices because of some mythical cost disease, which is used by industries who are basically saying it's hard to justify or not justify increases in a sector that has no true metric to measure, like textiles or commodities being produced. In reality, colleges were simply driving up costs by going on hiring and building sprees, loading up on luxuries like gourmet foods, gym facilities for the privileged, and all kinds of other absurd amenities. It was a self-perpetuating cycle. Colleges charged more, students borrowed more and expected more, and then colleges spent more. It turned into a sort of gilding akin to military contractors sucking up every last penny the Pentagon can offer. That same year, Bennett declared war on the for-profit education industry. He aimed to root out the colleges with high default rates and eliminate them from receiving federal student aid. These colleges were defaulting at exceptionally high rates, and in a strange turn of events, leading Democrats in Congress were quick to adopt the industry argument, asserting that for-profit schools had more defaults simply due to having lots of low-income and minority students not because of institutional behavior or practices. Many Democrats, like Senators Ted Kennedy and Paul Simon, had defended these institutions, claiming they they played a vital role in preparing low-income students, single mothers, and minorities for jobs in specific fields. A skeptical Senator Ted Kennedy asked Bennett to name the institutions that were defrauding students and ripping off the American public and admitting these unprepared students, Bennett pointed to an August 1984 report by the U.S. General Accounting Office, which is now the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, which found that 83% of proprietary schools consistently failed to enforce academic progress standards. Bennett expressed his disgust, calling the abuses in these schools an outrage perpetuated not only on the American taxpayer, but most tragically, upon some of the most disadvantaged and most vulnerable members of society. He went on to tell Time magazine that the kids are left without an education and with no job and that the taxpayer ends up holding the bag for the kid who gets cheated. This all leads us to story time. Once upon a time in the heart of the United States, there was a department tasked with a noble mission to oversee the taxpayer-funded programs aimed at providing education to students. This department was known as the Education Department. Ooh. But little did they know, they were about to face a storm that would shake the foundations of their very existence.
1: I don't like scary stories.
0: Enter Eleanor Hill a former prosecutor who was tapped by Senator Sam Nunn to start investigating the student loan industry and the for-profit colleges. As she delved deeper into the matter, she was shocked by what she discovered. The Education Department was struggling to keep up with the hundreds of for-profit schools and student lenders throughout the country, with limited resources and a staff of just three.
1: This is where my taxes go?
0: The lack of oversight was palpable as the department was failing to check for fraud, leaving the door open for entrepreneurs to buy a school only to open a branch miles away and teach something entirely different. Undermanned, the education department had placed their trust in accrediting agencies. These were private regional bodies across the U.S. that were supposed to police the quality of schools. But these accrediting agencies were staffed part-time by employees of universities and lacked the resources to thoroughly check the schools.
1: Oh, Jesus!
0: To make matters worse, there was an inherent conflict of interest in the system, as the schools that were being regulated were also the biggest beneficiaries. Hill uncovered a world of profiteering, dubious educational institutions, and unchecked greed that was operating with little oversight banks were lending to students of schools of questionable quality, only to sell the loans for a quick profit, usually to Sally Mae, who was being paid by the U.S. government, regardless of whether the students repaid their loans. Hill's findings were crucial in understanding the inner workings of the student loan industry and where the money was going.
1: You are the worst toy tower ever.
0: She pulled back the veil of secrecy that had protected this world, revealing a morass of exploitation and deceit. After 2 years of investigation and a series of hearings, Hill compiled her findings into a report that Senator Nunn released in 1991. The report concluded that schools were exploiting the ready availability of billions of dollars of guaranteed student loans and the weak and inattentive system responsible for them. This was leaving hundreds of thousands of students with little or no training, no jobs, and a significant amount of debt they could never repay. The American taxpayer was left to pick up the tab for billions of dollars in losses while those responsible reaped huge profits. Senator Nunn proclaimed at the hearing, We have yet to hear of a single part of the student loan program that is working efficiently and effectively. The testimony has been so discouraging that one has to wonder if even immediate and concentrated reforms can, at this late date, salvage these programs. And so the story of the education department, the student loan industry, and for-profit colleges in the 1980s has become a cautionary tale of Exploitation, Greed, and the Consequences of Unchecked Power In America's universities, public funding has been replaced by corporate gifts and contracts. Think tanks and programs funded by ultra-partisan power brokers have infiltrated these institutions, pushing forth their ideologies and transforming the academic landscape to meet their own interests. University leaders such as former University of California President Mark Udoff even dubbed these institutions hybrid entities, stuck somewhere between public and private. But this corporate influence doesn't just restrict the research and education that these universities can produce, it also holds sway over the students who will one day become the world's leaders. The powers that be, with the help of media spin, will claim it's very simple, Nobody held a gun to the students' heads. It seems like a classic case of buyer's remorse, and it would be silly to think that the government should intervene. The truth is, the functions of society that were once trusted have failed. Finance brokers have poisoned politics, colleges, and society into thinking that education is just a zero-sum game for these students. The college system, once seen as a great equalizer, has been reshaped into a false credentialing system now largely used to prop up existing power structures and elitism, creating an illusion that indentured education can bring us class equality. It's a stunningly audacious system. First, students are coerced into taking out crippling amounts of debt to pay for their education. Then, after graduating with degrees that often prove far less valuable than promised, they must go out and beg for work in whatever unskilled labor job they can find because financiers tank the economy once or twice every decade, all while being forced to surrender large chunks of their meager earnings to the lender profiting the very lenders who trapped them in the cycle of debt to begin with. It's a form of financial slavery. It's truly a debt sentence. Think of it this way. We start off by asking 18-year-olds, hot off the heels of being told that a degree was the ticket to success by teachers, counselors, and parents, to go into a financial aid office and try to understand what they're signing up for, which is basically taking out a mortgage, without collateral and almost no hope of discharge in bankruptcy. These lenders are exempt from all sorts of requirements that other kinds of lenders are legally bound to have, though. You know, like, there's no requirement to disclose all the different consequences. No one explains things to these kids like APR. It's not like they provide you with an amortization table. If you want to understand who's providing the loan, servicing it, or whether it's subsidized or unsubsidized, you have to go through a virtual labyrinth to find it. Something happened to us in the 80s. And if you look at the 70s, we needed a change, but instead of looking at what worked and what didn't work, we just smashed everything with a giant wrecking ball. And yeah, there's a lot of people who like to blame Reagan's views of the relationship between government and business, and maybe that did help. But it's what we asked for. We demanded the government stay out of our lives, but then when things inevitably go south, we throw our hands up in the air and cry, where is the government? Nobody in this country seems to like safety nets until they're falling. Meanwhile, we ignore what truly is happening before our eyes. Let's put it this way. In 1940, a child born into an American household had a 92% chance of making more money than their parents. But a child born in the 1980s has just a 50% chance of surpassing their parents' income. In 40 years, the American dream went from being a widespread reality to essentially a coin toss. America is a country that boasts about its capitalism and free markets. However, in recent decades, America has become a confederacy of industrial scams the biggest sectors of the economy from wall street banks and payday lenders to sectors like healthcare, military production, even commercial and residential real estate are now entire industries that exist primarily to redistribute wealth from everyday americans to shareholders and c-suite executives. these schemes often lack regulation or any meaningful oversight, making it easy for companies to profit. as a result, America has become a country that is good at making guaranteed profit scams. Student loan debt is no different. The student debt crisis is nothing short of a $1.7 trillion transfer of wealth from young people to profiteering corporations facilitated by universities relying on outside funding and the government opening up the student loan market to for-profit institutions. Tuition costs have skyrocketed leaving those unable to afford traditional higher education open prey to for-profit colleges perpetuating a vicious cycle of debt and exploitation it's a rigged game from start to finish with banks private investors and the government all benefiting off the backs of students these are our new factories and they're much better at making money than they are at making anything else as a result inequality has soared trust in institutions has collapsed and our politics have become an unending civil war over who deserves how much of a shrinking economic pie. To reverse these trends, we need to put more emphasis on antitrust enforcement, repairing our social safety net, and rebuilding the middle class. But we need to come to grips with the fact that our economy has turned into one big shakedown. The reality of our times characterized by endless wars, tax cuts, and unending bailouts favoring the wealthy and corporations, has resulted in a cycle of underfunding for public colleges. Over the past decade, states have continuously reduced their investments in these institutions, leading to a host of concerning outcomes. The cost of higher education is becoming increasingly inaccessible for families. Graduates are burdened with crippling levels of debt, and the country's economic future is at risk due to a shortage of skilled labor and middle-class jobs. However, there is a less obvious yet equally troubling consequence of this underfunding, a decline in shared values and civic engagement. A college education has always been seen as a means to foster critical thinking, citizenship, and empathy in young individuals. But when states slash funding for public colleges, they send a message that these important qualities are no longer a priority. Thus, the underfunding of public colleges isn't just a financial problem, it's a societal one as well. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, An educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival as a free people. And perhaps... That's a good place to start.
2: Sometimes I listen to
0: myself. come in first place. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jay Burke show is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go directly to jayburkshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.